Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And if you do not have a Bible with you, there's some on the back table in the foyer. You can slip up your hand and one of our guys in the back will uh, give you a Bible. I do encourage you to follow along in your Bibles um, if possible. If you are new to the Bible, you're going to find a uh, table of contents. At the very beginning, you can find a page number for, for 1 Timothy. And chapter 3 is where, we'll be, where we will be at. What we're going to do is read verses 8 through 13. And then I'm going to pray and ask God to open our eyes to this passage. And then we're going to dive in to our teaching for today. So follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives... Likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we ask you to move in our community this morning, move in our hearts uh, in, in, our, in our lives, in our relationships with one another, as we uh, look into this, uh, this, this uh, concept, this office, this, this role of deacon, um, I, I pray that you, you take all this and it just becomes alive for us, and we know that, that all biblical truth is your truth, and that all of your truth is uh, convicting, and it can cut us, and it can divide us, and we ask that you do that this morning, that you slay our flesh and that you bring your spirit alive in our hearts. God, as we, as we look at this, I pray that, uh, that we understand your truth, that we don't uh, fall into um, any, any human ideas, um, but, but that your, your truth sticks out to us. And if, if I say anything that needs to be forgotten, I pray that it will be quickly forgotten after I'm done. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One garden member grew up as a pastor's kid, and uh, recounted a story of the time that she uh, began to rebel from the faith, and used a certain scenario, a certain situation, as her excuse at the time, as a 17-year-old, to rebel, and uh, in, in some ways walk away from the faith. And you know what it had to do with? Church structure. We talked last week about the importance of church structure and also talked about the fact that, that many today, maybe even some in this room, would say a, a, church, or a series on church structure is a waste of time or that maybe there's more important things to talk about or more important passages in the Scriptures. However, what we find is that when we start having conversations with people that that's actually just not true. Church structure actually is important, and I hear all the time, if not weekly, stories of how people have been turned off in some way, uh, become disillusioned because of uh, a lack of care when it comes to God's design for the structure and for the leadership of the church. So this, this uh, certain young lady then... Uh, began this rebellion process. Uh, going, going back, the, the story was uh, her, her, her father, who was a pastor, took a church of about 80 people. In a couple of years, it grew to 120, so some really cool things were happening. Um, it was exciting. New people were coming to Christ. People were getting saved. And, and the, uh, the, the deacons of the church, and everybody say, I know where this is going. The deacons of the church uh, had a different plan, a different idea of what success should look like. And so they told the pastor, her father, that, uh, he's, that the church is growing too fast and it's growing with the wrong kind of people. 
Didn't know that was possible, but evident, evidently some deacons out there did. And so they told him that he needs to stop uh, teaching the way that he's teaching. He needs to make his messages just kind of keep them uh, simple, but I think what we, we would translate that as simplistic. Um, and, uh, and, and that the church needs to stop growing in this way. Uh, evidently, he refused. They, they said that they were going to pull their money. The, the deacons were going to leave the church if he continued. Um, and he continued. It wasn't long before, on a Wednesday night, the deacons approached him, the pastor, and said, uh, we have taken a vote, and you are no longer going to be our pastor this Sunday will be your last. That was his last Sunday. The congregation knew nothing of it. They fired him. And, um, and his daughter began to scratch her head and say, hmm, I don't know about all this. You see, church structure does matter. And, and, and so we're doing this three-week series on church structure, uh, looking at the three sort of big concepts uh, as to what the, what the Bible calls churches to, uh, to be about and how we are to structure ourselves in leadership, etc., how we are to make decisions. Last week, we looked at the first office, if you would, and that's the office, the role of the elder. This week, we're looking at the second office, and that is the office of deacon. Everybody say deacon. What is, what is a deacon? I, I decided as, as I was preparing this that I would take somewhat of an informal survey among some of our garden people and just ask them, when you hear the word deacon, what, what automatically comes to mind? Um, and man, some of the responses were awesome. I'll give them to you. Uh, one person said, an old lady wearing a dress and a funny hat. That is a deacon. Uh, another person said that the deacon is the backup to the pastor and the choir. Uh, another person said, when I, when I hear deacon, I think of church foe leadership or man-made leadership layer in the church that adds to bureaucracy. Mm. I think along with that, someone else gave the picture of what these guys look like, stodgy, balding guys in brown suits. <laughs> Let's keep this in mind when we elect deacons. Another person said gargoyles that would watch over the grounds of the church of the old cathedrals. It's in 1 Timothy, I think. Now, somebody said that uh, deacons are highly respected. Another person said that deacons are people who are aged with wisdom and admirable, and they're leaders and they're honorable. Very good answers. Another person said that deacons are buffers for the pastor. Uh, someone who knows the ins and outs of the church. Another person said that deacons pass out communion and collect the offering. And then they added that deacons also must wear high-waisted pants and big 1980s prescription glasses. So deacons are essentially hipsters. The three hipsters got that. 1980s glasses, that was sort of the connection there with the hipsters. Now, one person said that deacons are the elite and their kids get special treatment. And then another person said deacons are the grunt men and they're the unsung heroes of the church. So I might ask you this morning, what are deacons? <laughs> or what in the world are deacons? Let's put it that way. Um, deacons is this, uh, f this, this word, if any of you have grown up in church, that you probably have heard. It's a word that's used a lot. Uh, in, within religious circles, yet I'm not sure if a lot of us really know what in the world a deacon actually is, and if we're supposed to have deacons or what that, where that came from. If you grew up in a Catholic church, you might think of those guys who assist in the Eucharist or at wakes. If you grew up in a traditional Baptist or congregational church, you may have found that deacons in that church operated in some kind of, as some kind of leadership board. Uh, similar to the way that we described elders last week. If you uh, grew up uh, with, with no concept of deacons, uh, you, you may uh, think deacons are just some old-school religious office that people create. And you, and you may actually 
uh, resonate with one garden member some time ago when we were at our early stages of forming the garden who said, we're not going to be a church that has deacons and weird stuff like that someday, are we? Um, or you may have not grown up in church at all. You may have no church background. You've never heard the word deacon before, and you're sitting there thinking, hmm, that might be a nice name for a kid. You know, name, <laughs> might name my boy deacon. I kind of like that. And it's not a bad name for a kid. So what is a deacon? Uh, what we find in the scriptures is that deacons actually do matter, uh, that the deacon role matter, matters, that their purpose matters, we find that their qualifications matter, and so this is where we're going today. We're talking all about deacons this morning, and I hope that as we do that, that God will actually speak and even convict in some areas in your life, and I think, I think you'll see where that might be as we, as we get into it. So let's, let's first do this. Let's, let's, let's look at this word deacon in 1 Timothy 3. Where we're going to go is we're, we're basically going to say deacons matter. That's kind of our first point. The second point is um, that the deacon's purpose matters. We have to understand what the purpose is. Then the third point is that the deacon's qualifications matter. So this first place, let's go, let's, let's just say, uh, let, let's understand what a deacon is um, and the fact that deacons matter. So the word deacon comes from the word diakonos. Everybody say diakonos. So it actually, that's the Greek word, that's the original word that was used in the New Testament when it was written, diakonos. And it sounds like, what word that we have, uh, what English word today? Deacon, good. It, it means, <laughs> you actually answered, Andrea, good job. It means uh, servant or table server. So you might think of a restaurant, your favorite restaurant, or maybe some of you will go out to eat after church today, and the person who comes to wait on your table, that is a literal deacon right there. That's a table server. So they are a servant. Now, this, this concept of service, this concept of deaconing is in some ways at least in uh, mainstream culture celebrated today, meaning everybody who, every, everybody from local leaders to your firemen to your police, we, we say thank you for your service to our community, right? So we see in some ways our leaders today as servants of our society and we thank them for their service. Or we, or we may say, you didn't do a good job serving our community, so we're not going to re-elect you, right? Um, or we could even take that into professional, uh, the professional world. Uh, medical doctors, we thank you for your service to this broader community. All the way up to the, the ruler of our country, the president of the United States, we would say he is a man who's to serve our country, right? So we, we, we take this concept today of service, and at least we give it lip service. At least we say that service is a good thing, right? And we, at least lip service, we, we want to honor those who are servants in our culture today, right? You all with me? It hasn't always been that way. The historian John Dickinson, he, he talks about how in the, in the ancient Greek world, the, the, the kind of humility that was associated with, with servants was not something that was looked highly upon. It was actually looked down upon. So to say, thank you for your service, what, a concept that did not exist. The greats were not servants in the ancient world. So you, so you might then be a servant of a king or an emperor because if you don't serve them, they can kill you. So you might serve them. But you're not going to serve an equal. That just, that just wouldn't, that, that wouldn't happen in the ancient world. And actually, if you served an equal, you would be seen as someone who's sort of morally suspicious, and it's a, it would be a very shameful act for you to do. And your mom would look at you and be like, get, your get yourself together. You are not to serve an equal. You are to, de to demand the honor that you deserve. So what happened? Ah, Jesus changes everything, doesn't he? Jesus changes everything. 
What we find in, in the Gospels is that Jesus changed everything. So in Matthew, we see this story. There's this, this, this mama who comes up to Jesus with her two sons, and her two sons, James and John, are disciples of Jesus, all right? They're two of his 12 disciples. So these are two young dudes. I you know, some people say they're 17, 18 years old. Two young guys who are giving their lives uh, to, to Jesus, and they're serving, they're serving Jesus and following him. Jesus is there talking about his kingdom, the kingdom that's coming. The, the boy's mama, doing the good mama thing, grabs them by their, their shirt collars and drags them to Jesus because she wants to make sure that they're going to get the honor that they deserve, right? Isn't this the good mama thing to do? You mamas in the house? Or you sons who were mama boys and... <laughs> Your mom did this for you, like you weren't starting on the basketball team, and your mom grabbed you and took you to the coach and said, why is he not starting? Right? Happened to me. <laughs> um, so she's doing the mama thing. She takes her two boys up to Jesus and says, look, when, when you get into your kingdom, um, my, my two boys, they're going to be on your left and on your right, correct? Like, they're going to be... They're going to be honored, and they're going to be great, right? They're going to, be, they're going to have people serving them, right? They're, like, they're giving their lives to you. Tell me this is all going to be worth it in the end for my two boys. And Jesus is like, woman, you don't know what you're asking. Side note, who was on Jesus' right and his left as he's going into his kingdom? Two thieves. Mm. She, she really didn't know what she was asking. Woman, you, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus says. Um, and, and then he, he uh, has the other 12 disciples come up, and, and they actually reprimand J James and John, like, man, you brought your mom out here? And, and there's this commotion, so Jesus gathers them around, and he addresses them, and he teaches them something. And listen, remember, Jesus changes everything, okay? Look what Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 20, verse 25. Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. So he's referring to the Greek world around them, the ancient world around them. He's like, you know how the secular is what the word we would use? The Gentile word, the Greek world, you know how they operate. And their rulers lord over their people. They don't see it as service. That, that concept didn't exist back then, Okay. So their rulers lord their rulership or their authority over the people. And, and their great ones, he says, the people who are great in their culture and honored in their culture, exercise authority over them. And then essentially Jesus is reminding us, by the way, I'm changing everything. Kind of keep that in the back of your mind as you do the rest of this life with me, all right? What you thought was this way, it's actually this way. What you defined as this, you actually need to redefine it because it's really this. I'm changing it all. And so this is the way that the Greek world operates. The Gentiles operate like this. The great ones exercise authority. Then it's verse 26. He says, it shall not be so among you. Which, by the way, is every single one of you because we are all disciples of Jesus. So think of this as Jesus teaching then to the church, teaching to our church today. It shall not be so among you. This is not the definition of greatness anymore. But whoever would be great among you, so here's true greatness, whoever would be great must be your diakonos, must be your deacon, must be your Servant. So Jesus is completely redefining and he's reshaping this, this concept, this word, diakonos, deacon, servant. And he's giving us a whole new way now to look at what true greatness actually is. And he's launching this concept of servant from this lowly status to something that is honorable and something that is great. And I wonder, even today, how this concept of uh, being a servant, as something that is great and honorable, I wonder how this would affect you in your relationships if you not only just gave it lip service, but you actually lived it out. You actually believed it. 
How would this affect your relationships? How would this affect the way that you see church? How would this affect the way that you come to church? The way that you interact with people? Do you see other people that are attending your church, this church, other members, do you see them as there to serve you? Do you see them as as there for you to feed off of and for you to get something out of so you can feel good when you leave? Or do you come into a building mingling with a bunch of other people, saying this is an opportunity for me to be a diakonos, for me to be a servant, for me to serve, because true greatness are those who serve, those who give their lives in service for others. How would this change if you really embraced it? How would it change the way that you even think about something like coming into a worship gathering for a church or being a member of a local church? How would this affect the way that you look at your job? Would you no longer just see your job as just trying to get a paycheck? Or would you be able then to begin seeing your job as that of a a servant, an opportunity to serve the community in some way, whether you're flipping burgers down at Burger King or whether you're a school teacher or whether you're a bus driver, whatever it might be, you're contributing to society in some way as a servant. How would this be if you embraced Jesus' understanding, Jesus' concept of serving, of diakonos? I wonder how this would affect your marriage, for those of you who are married, for those of you who have a spouse. Do you see your spouse as someone who you primarily are to get something from? They are to watch your baby for you. They are to make money for you. They are to pleasure you. They are to take you out. They are to do these nice things for you. Are you trying to get something from your spouse, or do you see your spouse as a person, or maybe you could say the person in your life that you now have the opportunity to diakonos, to serve, and to give yourself completely for? I wonder how your marriage would change if you redefined what true greatness was and what life is all about. 38 times in the New Testament, um, we see this word diakonos used, this word servant or service, serve. And it's always, by the way, used in a very honorable way. Listen, Jesus changed how we see diakonos. He changed how we see service to the point where today, even in mainstream culture, the people that we are honoring are the people that we say are our servants. It's fascinating, isn't it? I would submit that we wouldn't even honor people in that context if it wasn't for Jesus walking this planet. So, deacons, servants, when I say the word deacon, know that I'm saying servant. Everybody say servant. All right, deacon equals servant. Deacons, servants matter in the kingdom of God. And not only do they matter, but they are given a high status in the kingdom of God. This is true greatness. This is something worth aspiring to in the kingdom of God, the role of a deacon. Now, by the time we get into the early church, so we see Jesus sort of reconstructing and reconfiguring and reshaping, and then we get into the early church, and what we see is this explosion then of people who are coming around Christ coming around his teaching, coming around his model, primarily coming around the gospel that is the fact that Jesus died for them, that they have new life, their sins are forgiven, and that they have, that that Jesus rose from the dead. And so the church is exploding now around Jesus. And with this explosion, we have thousands of people now entering into the church, four or five thousand, more every day being added to their number, And all of a sudden, the church hits a dilemma. So you've got the, at the time, the apostles, who are sort of the prototype elders, if you would, the church leaders. You've got the apostles who are teaching, giving the the pure milk of the word. They're they're, uh, instructing, they're protecting the flock, and a dilemma comes up. And we see, see this in Acts chapter 6, and I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 6, because I want you to see how they handled this, this dilemma. Um, if, if you're new to the Scriptures, Acts is about uh, this far back from 1 Timothy, right there. So just grab that, that many pages and give it, a, give it a flip. 
You might find it. Acts chapter 6. Look what happens. Look at the problem, the dilemma they face, and then look at their solution. So we see that in verse 1, it says that as the disciples are increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, Hellenists uh, were sort of, or they were the Greek-speaking Jews, all right? This is kind of a little historical side note. I don't want to get bogged down in this, but you have to understand this. There were Jews in Jerusalem who knew Hebrew and who read the Scriptures in Hebrew, which was seen as sort of the best way to read the Scriptures at the time. And then there were those who worshipped the Jewish God, God, um, and they, but, but yet they, they grew up in a uh, Greek culture, so they were not from Jerusalem. They had Greek customs, they looked Greek, they spoke Greek, they read Greek. Now, what, what had sort of happened with this is that the Hebrew-speaking Jews and now the Hebrew-speaking Christians were, were seen as sort of the uh, first class in the kingdom of God, all right? Because they knew the Hebrew, they had Hebrew, Hebrew uh, culture. The Greek-speaking Christians who had Greek culture were seen as second class. Like, you're part of us, but you're second class. And what's happening now is the Hebrews are in charge of distributing the food. Because, by the way, all of their property, if you own property was placed at the church leader's feet, and it was distributed to everybody as they had need. So they had one common fund for everything. And so they're distributing food every day, and the, the, uh, the Greek-speaking Christians have this outcry to the church leaders because their widows are being neglected in the distribution of food by the Hebrews. You see what's happening here? This is akin to racism culture, classism, all right? Let's, another little side note here. This is very important. Um, divisions existed, and conversion alone did not erase all of those problems. Are you tracking with me? So these divisions already existed. This racism, if you would, or this classism or cultural elitism it already existed. They're converted to Christ. They, they truly they give evidence of regeneration. They believe the gospel. Yet, all of their sins are not yet gone. Like, they still have these issues. They still have these divisions. You see, how often does someone leave a church over this kind of stuff? I mean, what would, the, what would happen today if this happened? The Greeks would take off and they would say, this, this, these people are classist, they're elitist, we're taken off, and we're starting a Greek-speaking church. Right? This is, what, this is what we do today. And so then we end up with all these different kinds of churches based on your preference and color and language. and Not so in the New Testament. So there are these massive, severe issues that are coming up Within the first church, how many leave? How, how often do you hear someone say, well, let me, let me put it this way. If, if you were to leave a church because there are divisions, because there are problems, because there are some people who are elitist, because there's some people who are racist, because there are people who are classist, because there are people who have ongoing sins, because... Is, you name it. And you, and you say, I'm done with that church. I'm leaving that church in search of a quote-unquote biblical church. What you have to realize is that you just left a biblical church. Because biblical churches have a lot of problems in them and issues and divisions. But here's the other thing about biblical churches is they have they're, they're, they're seeking to glorify God within their community. They are regenerate, and they are not satisfied with problems. They're not satisfied with divisions and classism and racism and elitism and ongoing sin and whatever you might say. 
And so they're constantly working against those things, even though, that they, even though they, they exist, and they will continue to exist. So this is what happens here in Acts. Big problem comes up, big dilemma. And it's, it's brought to the, the, the apostles, prototype elders, church leaders, if you would. And look what they do <clears throat> in verse 2. It says, and the twelve, so these are the apostles, they, they summoned the full number of the disciples, so it's a couple thousand people, and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So, he, so notice, they don't just say, pick out seven men who have good managerial skills. He didn't even say anything about the skill. He said, pick out seven men who are full of wisdom, because there's going to be a lot of wisdom. They've got to know how to talk here. And they're filled with the Spirit. They're not led by their, by their anger, by their issues, by their rage. They're, they're, they're actually led by the Spirit of God. Wisdom filled with the Spirit, and then he says, whom we will appoint to this duty. So practically speaking then, we see that there's this need. The church leaders then uh, create, in a sense, the, this, this deacon position. They say it's not right that we should serve tables. That serve tables is that concept of deaconing right there. So they create then these seven different roles, or these se- this role that seven men will, will fill, rather. And the church affirms these men. There's congregational approval. Verse 4, but we, the church leaders, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So we see here, uh, this is, almost every single theologian would say this is the beginning of the deacon ministry, right here. This is where the concept began. This is where that office of seven men, seven people, began, right here. And we see two primary reasons as to why the church moved from a general concept of deaconing, which everybody should do. We should all see ourselves as servants of Christ and then serving one another. But then they created this specific role for these seven people to, uh, to, to specifically meet a need. Two, two reasons this was created. We see it in verse 2 and verse 4. The first reason, it's to free up the elders to focus on the service of word and prayer. So we see that in verse 2. The 12 said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 4, they say it again, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is interesting. What initially then fueled the deacon ministry is the uh, preservation of the word ministry. So the, the apostles were essentially saying, we, like, if, if we take on now this, this uh, table-serving role as well, if we start trying to figure out how to meet all of the problems, the social needs, the, in, the injustice that, that exists, if, if that's up to us to figure that all out and to make it happen, we will then have to neglect the word ministry. But they're saying that it wouldn't be right for us, like that would be morally wrong for us to put this aside to meet physical needs. Now, interesting note here. Uh, What we would call liberal churches today, loosely defined as a church who does a lot of cool stuff in the community, um, but they don't believe that, that the Scriptures are God's inerrant word, that Jesus rose from the dead, that uh, they essentially don't believe how we would define the gospel. A hundred years ago, liberal churches today, a hundred years ago, believed the gospel. I mean, study study church history. A little over a hundred years ago, what we would call liberal churches today where, where now you can no longer hear gospel preaching, they had gospel preaching. But do you know what happened? 
Church historians have written all about this. What happened is they forsake the word ministry when they saw the great physical needs. So, so think about it, living in the time, uh, immigrants, the, the Irish immigrants coming into America, massive poverty all around them, and they said, man, it's, it's, it's not right that we just focused on individual uh, personal conversion, meeting spiritual needs, we also have to focus on physical needs. And friends, they were right. But what happened over time is that this got neglected for this. And more and more focus was put on the physical needs and acts of justice and mercy and the word and personal conversion and the un- uh, a solid understanding of the gospel was slowly walked away from. Until now, in, in, in many circles, the spiritual needs of people is really just kind of all wrapped up in a, some kind of physical need. And pastors, the role of a pastor or elder as, as someone who's committed to proclaiming the Word of God into prayer, that role has been reduced to somewhat of a second-rate social worker who's just trying to help people. So, the, what fueled then the deacon ministry is the preservation of the Word ministry, that we cannot neglect this. But secondly, what fueled the deacon ministry is this. While we have to meet spiritual needs, while we cannot neglect spiritual needs, we also cannot neglect physical needs. Like never has the church said that we ought to just focus on spiritual needs and making sure everybody's spiritually fit, but if they need money or if they need food or if they need a job, I mean, we just neglect all of that because that's not what we, that's not spiritual needs. No, the church has never said that. So while the church focuses on spiritual needs, they also need to focus on physical needs as well. And we would include any kind of non-word need in the church, including who's setting things up, who's running a sound system, who's brewing coffee, who's taking care of putting a children's ministry together, who, who are taking care of these, these, these needs within a congregation to make sure that we are set and everybody's ready and everybody's bellies are full of food so they can now sit and hear the word. And so the deacon ministry then was created for those two purposes, to free up the elders and also because we have to uh, meet physical needs. We cannot ignore them. This is, when, this is why uh, we have to understand uh, what the deacon ministry is. Because, guys, when, when I read Acts, I get really excited. <laughs> when I read Acts and I read, like, thousands came to Christ that day. I'm like, what? I want that. When I read Acts and, I, and it says, and, and daily people, are, they're, they're at, their numbers are growing because people are coming to Christ. When I read Acts and I see that all needs were met in the community. Like there was nobody in this four or five thousand member church who went hungry. All needs were met. See, I read that and I'm like, man, I love our church and where we're at, but that's where I want to go, right? I mean, that's where I want to head. This is what I want. I mean, if we could say here, like, what's a vision for the garden? Well, it's, it's that. But so, so in this context, and we have to understand why the deacon ministry exists and what the purpose is. If we misunderstand the purpose of the deacon's ministry, crazy things will happen. Deacons will end up being balding guys in brown suits. You know, nothing wrong with it. If you're balding and you're wearing a brown suit today, I hope it is. Anybody, anybody wearing a brown suit? All right, well, I think we're good. Um, deacons could morph into some kind of secondary leadership board, um, which fires pastors. Deacons, uh, uh, the, the deacon role could be ignored altogether, and needs uh, may go unmet. Or... Um, the deacon role uh, is in some way morphed into uh, just various ministry needs, and you start throwing people at needs, and you say, well, we have this need here, so you have the skills to do it, all right? 
So meet that need. So for example, uh, I, was, I served in a church once, and I was the youth pastor, and the guy who was in charge of the church property in the building um, began to uh, uh, complain about basically any youth event, um, including our weekly events, and began writing policy that affected us, and got to the point where I basically went to the senior pastor, and I was like, look, I can't even do ministry anymore. Like, I can't even open the doors, because every week I get this guy coming to me. But, but listen, he was a guy who he was skilled. He knew how to manage things. He knew how to write policy. But essentially, the, the, the deacon concept was ignored because they missed the qualifications. And so, so not only are, do deacons matter and do the deacons' purpose matter, but deacons' qualifications, the deacon qualifications matter. I mean, have you ever considered the fact that the, the, the person in a church who is overseeing church property actually, first of all, he ought not just to be somebody who can write policy and understand building codes and manage things, but he also has a list of spiritual qualifications that he must meet in order to fulfill that role. Have you ever considered that the, the um, person who's organizing children's ministry is not just somebody who likes kids, but that there are spiritual qualifications in order to meet that need, or the, the, the person who's running the soundboard. Have you ever considered the fact that it's not just somebody who can do sound and they're, they're an expert at it, but rather there's a, a list of spiritual qualifications for this person to have. Have you ever considered the person who's doing social justice ministries in the community? We go after this certain issue in the community and we start doing, creating a ministry around it. That whoever's spearheading that is not just to be someone who has a passion for that. But they, there's also a list of spiritual qualifications or the person who's overseeing the benevolence, making sure everybody's needs are met within the congregation. This is a person who has, they're full of uh, the spirit, they're full of wisdom, and there's a list of qualifications that they must meet. And if we ignore that, then things will go crazy. So let's, let's look at it. Go back to 1 Timothy, if you would, chapter 3, and I want to walk through the, the qualifications for uh, those who serve in this role, this office of deacon within a church. First off, uh, when we look at 1 Timothy 3, <clears throat> uh, I, I want to first off say that I believe both men and women are qualified to serve as deacons in a Church, and I'll, I'll explain that to you why I, why I believe that. Um, again, I don't want to get bogged down with this, but I want to give you some thoughts here. In verse 11, uh, you see there in 1 Timothy 3, it says, their wives, so this is in the middle of a um, list of qualifications for deacons, and it says, their wives likewise must be dot, dot, dot. Um, there is no word in the Greek for wives. It's the same word as woman, women. So women uh, can be translated either women or wives from the Greek language. Um, so I would believe, along with many other theologians, that this would be better translated, the women, likewise, must be dot, dot, dot. So essentially then, we're in this list of qualifications for the deacons. He's talking about deacons in a male context, and then he turns and he says, and the women, who are also deacons, must be, and then he actually mirrors and repeats the qualifications that he just said for the, for the male deacons uh, with some word tweaks. I'll point that out in just a second. Um, so I believe that should be uh, translated women and understood as women deacons. Three reasons, just really quick for you, why I believe that. In verse 12, he again addresses the husband of one wife. He, he again addresses the male deacons' wives, and so it seems redundant uh, to, to reintroduce them if he's just talked about them. Um, secondly, the, uh, there are absolutely no qualifications for elders' wives ever given in Titus or in 1 Timothy 3. Elders' wives' qualifications are never addressed. 
And so then why would he address the, the qualifications for a deacon's wife? This, this would place deacon's wives um, in, a, in a place of, I don't know, deeper scrutiny, um, a higher standard in the congregation than elders' wives. So it just doesn't really make sense that he would address here the, the deacon's wives and give qualifications for them if he hasn't done that already with the elders' wives. Uh, and then thirdly, we see an example in the scriptures of a female deacon. So in Romans 16, I was, I've, I've been reading through Romans this week in my devotional time. Wow, I think we need to do a Romans series soon. We might just do that in January. We'll see. But uh, in Romans 16, he's sort of closing his letter, and he's saying hi to everybody, he's, and he's commending the different people. And in verse 1, he commends to them Phoebe, who he says is a deacon in the church at Senkri, or a servant. Again, it's diakonos. That's the word that's used. And, she's lit- and it seems that she is fulfilling this kind of role at a specific church in Senkri. So for those reasons, I do believe, and, and this is the stance of the garden, that women and men can both serve as deacons. Everybody clear? Everybody clear? All right, just want to double check. Um, going on in the qualifications, so a lot of these qualifications mirror the elder qualifications that we went through last week. Uh, we see in the first couple verses here in, in chapter 3, uh, the qualifications for the overseers, elders. We were in Titus last week. It's, they're very similar. And then in deacons, or as he turns to deacons, in many ways he mirrors the qualifications for the elders. For example, for the male deacons who are married, he says that they ought to be a one-woman man and that they should have kids who, uh, um, or that, that they should uh, manage their homes well. And so as the elders are, are given the same uh, command, deacons are to be people who are... Um, morally um, commendable. Uh, if they are married, they're a one-woman man, they're faithful to their, to their home, and if they have a family that, they're, that, they're, that they have expressed and that they show uh, good leadership within, within their home. Going on with some of the qualifications, the broader qualifications, we see in verse 8, it says, deacons likewise must be dignified they must be dignified and not double-tongued. And, and then we see this again in verse um, 11. For the women, it says that when the women also are to be dignified and not slanderers. Have you ever confided in somebody? And as soon as you confide in them, you walk away thinking, oh my gosh, I just confided in the wrong person. Has that ever happened to you? Like, I know that they are two-faced. Like, I know that they talk smack to me about everybody else, and I've seen them be all nice to these other people in their face, and then they turn around behind their back, right? And you know that you just confided in them. Ah! They're two-faced. Look, look, a deacon is not to be that kind of person, all right? A deacon is not to be two-faced. A deacon is not to be a slanderer. A deacon is not to be double-tongued, to say one thing to your face and then something else behind your back. A deacon is to be a person of their word, and you can trust them. Does this person demonstrate this kind of trustworthiness? Does this person keep their word? Again, in verse 8, we see that a deacon is to, uh, it says they're not addicted to much Wine, and again in verse 11, for the women deacons, it repeats it, that they are sober-minded. Have you ever been to a restaurant? I hope this hasn't ever happened to you. Imagine you went to a restaurant, and you sat down to eat. Let's say it was a really nice restaurant. You're spending a lot of money, like, you know, six bucks for a hamburger. And um, you should see my wallet. And, um, and you're sitting there, and, and the waiter comes to your table, and they are sloshed, all right? Like they can hardly stand up and their breath smells like Colt 45, and you are getting a buzz smelling their breath, all right? Uh, I think you'd probably put your finger up and say, can I get another waiter, please? I don't know if I want to give this guy my order. All right, we can't trust him. So a deacon is not to be someone like that, all right? As all Christians, we talked about this last week, a deacon should not get drunk. 
So does this person drink alcohol? If so, have they demonstrated control over alcohol or are they controlled by the grape? Does alcohol control them? So deacon is, a deacon is someone who demonstrates control in that area. Also in verse 8, they are not greedy. They're not greedy. Whether this role is funded or not, this is not someone who is doing this for a paycheck. All right, you tracking? I mean, imagine the, this, the selfless tasks that a deacon performs. If they were looking to get compensated for it, how that would throw problems into, into, the, uh, into the mix. So, funded or not, they're not someone doing this just because they can get a little something out of it. Verse 9, it says they are to hold the mystery of the faith. And verse 11 repeats this for the women. They're faithful in all things. What is, what is the mystery of the faith? Does anybody know? Paul talks about it. The mystery of the faith is the what? It's the gospel. It's the great mystery of the faith, the faith that, that, that God sent His Son into the world to die for us, to live the life that we could never live, to take the wrath of God upon Himself that would crush Him and then He would rise from the dead, and then uniting all people together, Gentiles, Jews, Greek-speaking, Hebrew-speaking, Hispanic, black, white, Asian, the, the great mystery of the faith. And they, 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 they hold to this. Like, this is where I'm rooted. I am rooted in the gospel, and I'm not swerving away from the gospel. So does this person then demonstrate a commitment to the gospel? Do they demonstrate perseverance in the faith? Or are they someone who easily swerves and easily drifts from the faith? Also in verse 10, it says that deacons are to be first tested. And again, women are to prove themselves faithful in all things, he says. Listen, deacons are often called to serve in very difficult um, environments, uh, often called to serve where there is great need, often called to serve where there is going to be a great amount of patience needed to deal with, with certain people, often going to be doing uh, just mundane tasks, showing up early every Sunday morning to do something to serve the congregation, a thankless job. And if this person is not battle-tested, they will quickly flake out. Like, they, they, won't, they won't be able to do it for a long term, a, a long time. They just don't, they don't have the, that kind of perseverance. So, so has this person's perseverance been tested? Has it seen that they persevere through the thanklessness? That they persevere through the challenges and through the, the grind of serving? So they are to be tested, and they are to be people who can persevere for the long haul. So, so those serving as deacons, those who have this official role of servant in the congregation, that are not just to be people then who have, are skilled, they're not just to be people who have a desire and a passion, but rather to be people who are skilled, they can do the task, they have a passion for it, they, they desire it, but also that they are qualified for the job, that they have the spiritual kind of qualifications that will, that will uh, when, when you see this person, you will see Christ. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. This is why. It says, For those who serve well as deacons, as servants, gain a good standing for themselves. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. This goes back to Jesus' redefinition, redefinition of greatness. For those who serve well, there's honor. It's, it's, it's true honor. For those who serve well as deacons, it's, it's true greatness. And guys, the church ought to honor the servants, the deacons among it. And so they must meet these qualifications. They must meet because the, these are people who truly are being lifted up in the kingdom of God as the greats. And then it goes on. 
there's, there's, there are people that will be honored, a good standing for themselves, and also they will have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. They will have great confidence in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Why is that? As you serve, it's saying, as, as you deacon, as you, for those who fulfill these kinds of roles within the garden, they will grow in their confidence in Jesus Christ. Why is that? It's because they're acting like Jesus. They're, they're, they're mirroring Him. They're picturing Christ. They're doing what Christ did. Going back to the story in Matthew, going back to Jesus' redefinition of greatness there. Remember, the good mama comes with her two sons and says, you're going to make sure that these two boys are taken care of and they're going to be sitting on your right and your left. And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking. Let me redefine it for you. Here's what true greatness is. And then Jesus says this in verse 28. I want to read it to you. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, even as the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be deaconed, served, but to deacon, to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus then came to deacon. So when you look at a deacon in a church, they are to be a model and a picture and a glimpse of the greatest deacon, Jesus Christ, who, though he had all rights to demand all honor and worship, came into this world and made himself nothing, taking on the role, the form of a what? A servant, a diakonos. He came and he took on this humble, lowly role that, by the way, was not highly regarded at the time, and he served the people. He did not come to be honored, he did not come, but he came to serve. He did not come to be served, he came as a deacon. And his deaconing, his serving the people who, by the way, knew him not. The world was made through him, right? Came into the world, and the world knew him not. The world rejected him. Even though he is serving them, they still completely reject him. They say, you are a fool. This is shameful, and we will smack you to a cross. The world knew him not. The world rejected him. Even in that rejection, and as Jesus is nailed to the cross, which seems to all of his disciples at the time to be the greatest loss, this is the worst thing that could have happened, even that was part of Jesus' plan for deaconing. You see, the greatest act of deaconing is Jesus being nailed to the cross willingly, taking on the sins of every one of us who spat in his face, dying for us, taking on and absorbing the wrath of God, and God being satisfied with the offering of His Son so that, the God, so that God might restore humanity back to Him. What a great act of de- deaconing, of serving. You see, we cannot know service unless we understand Jesus. We cannot understand the glory, the honor of being able to serve unless we understand Christ. I wonder how this might affect you this morning. I wonder what God might be saying to you about serving, the way you see serving, the way you see yourself being poured out Do you fundamentally see the people in the world around you as people who should, whether they are or not, they should serve you? Or do you see your primary role in this world as that of a deacon, that of a servant? And as we grow as a church and as we begin to recognize deacons, those who are already deaconing, we begin to recognize them as deacons, may they be people who picture the greatest deacon of all. Because we can only know deacons if we know Jesus. 
It only makes sense. And it will only work if we understand Christ. Amen? Thank you for listening. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. We do thank you for the fact that Christ was the greatest deacon of all. Lord, we all are broken people, and though we're trying to understand what it means to do this biblically and to, be a, to grow into a biblical community, we recognize with humility that there's other things that we're probably missing. But God, it's, it's, it's clear to us that many of us uh, have had some difficult backgrounds with, with church structure and deacons that did weird things. And Lord, I, I, I first of all pray for humility, that we as a community won't uh, look down on other churches because maybe they don't have it right, because they're not doing it right, or churches from our past, but rather we will have great humility in all of this. And that we will just get on our knees and say, God, please show us what this looks like for us as we establish ourselves, as we put structure to ourselves. And God, as we do look at deacons as, as best as we can understand them from the scriptures, this role of service, this picture of Christ, I pray that you will raise up in this community godly men and women who will deacon, who will serve this church, and who will meet the needs. And God, I pray that as a result, that the elders of this church will be able to continue to focus on the word, that we will never neglect the scriptures, the spiritual leadership, the, the, the care for the flock. But God, don't ever let us neglect the physical needs of the community within the church and outside of the church. Raise up deacons. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.